the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution, an economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Barris Age Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And on today's show, folks, we are doing Memorable Mentors. We're discussing economist Friedrich Hayek. Hey, Ed. How's it going? Ow. <laughs> been 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 re- reading Mr. Hayek, I take it. Oh my gosh, yeah. You know, it's great stuff, but let me just just be the first to say that Mr. Hayek needs a really good editor. Mr. Hayek is not an efficient user of words. No, but that's okay. His ideas are really really good and it's well worth reading, but holy cow. Yeah, I I do find them a little bit easier to read than others, but yes, he's not. It's not an easy read, and I think the other issue with him, kind of like Mises too, is he's such an eclectic thinker. And I know the book that we're going to specifically discuss because we have to. We have to limit it somehow because this guy is just—he's all over the map with ideas, mm-hmm. you, you yep. know. Um, so we're only going to talk about the six chapters in this uh, this book that you can get for free from the Foundation of Economic Education. But he's such an eclectic thinker because he drew from so many different sources, biology and science. And, you know, it, in that sense, he reminds me of a Peter Drucker. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine what his reading list must have been like? I mean, the, the, the number of books that he must have read on all of these different things and scholarly papers that he distilled down. I mean, it just must be unbelievable. So uh, he, here's, here's what happened with me, Ron. I, you know, the, 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 I read it on a Kindle, right? Yep. And you fire this little book up because it downloads in like less than two seconds. And you're like, oh, okay, so we're going we're gonna to be okay with this. And, and the first, get to the first page and it says this is going to be an hour and 22 minute read. Right mm-hmm. till the end of the book, right? By by about like ten chapters or ten pages in, it's now up to like three hours and a, three and a half hours because I'm reading this so slowly, <laughs> right? Yep. And when all is said and done, I probably spent over five hours in total on this and other things and going back and rereading some stuff. And honestly, I skimmed over a couple of the essays and did not read them in in depth because there were a couple that appealed more to me, which we'll talk about when we get through the the show. But do you have any did you get any background on Hayek that you wanted to talk about before we get into the work? 
No, I mean, other than, you know, obviously he was a Nobel Prize winner in Economist. In fact, I think he shared the award. They also gave it to somebody on the opposite side of the political spectrum, and I forget the guy's name. Uh, in 1974, he won the Nobel Prize. Uh, Gunnar Myrtle. Gunnar, Gunnar Myrtle. Myrtle. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He obviously born in Austria, right? But uh, and and was a student of Mises, who we've mm-hmm. discussed in the past in the series. And he, um, he then he went to the London School of Economics, where he kind of crossed swords with the uh, Fabian socialists, and that's where he wrote, I believe, his his um, most famous popular book, which is The Road to Serfdom, right. which we're not going to be discussing here. Uh, and then he came over to the um, United States, Ed, and he worked at the University of Chicago, and not in the economics department. They didn't put him there because they didn't really <laughs> – he, he wasn't your typical Chicago school economist. Let's just put it that way. Right. right? Didn't, didn't, didn't <laughs> right. really like math. Um, I mean, not that he didn't like math, but he didn't believe in it. Like Mises thought it was, mm-hmm. you know, um, just full of it and – so there's a strain of that in Hayek, too. But um, he also went, I guess, through a very personal, bitter divorce during that time, too. And that might have been partly a motivation for his move. There's a great book on him, by the way, by Donald Boudreaux. Oh, okay. Uh, called, the, mm-hmm. called The Essential Hayek. And it just it kind of discusses his life, his ideas, some of his writings. And, and uh, it'd be another book I'd highly recommend as well if you wanted more. Because... Like we just like we said, there's so many places we could go with this guy. <laughs> so right. we're we're just limiting it to these six essays. Um, so, uh, but and and uh, March he died March twenty third, um, uh, nineteen ninety two. So we just passed the twenty fifth anniversary of his passing. And Ed, the other interesting thing about this guy, um, he was born in eighteen ninety nine. So he actually saw the death of communism. Right. Right. He saw, he saw the Berlin Wall fall and mm-hmm. he saw the, the USSR implode. And, you know, he, he, along with Mises, was the one who really popularized the, the calculation problem. The idea that these the systems were untenable because there, there was just no way to calculate everything you need, it, that a central planner would need to calculate to run mm-hmm. an economy with any, you know, growth or dynamism. Right. And I want to ask you about that when we get, when we get to that second essay. So I think there's a couple of questions. I have some, some, had some thoughts on that, that I want to just share with you. I, I really enjoyed in the end, I really did enjoy reading this, but I, I, I guess it's a, the sign of a good book and a good writer, but I'm leaving with more questions than I am answers. So take that as a plus, I suppose. Yeah, this is one of those guys that you kind of have to dive in and read his work directly, uh, mm-hmm. which which isn't easy, uh, <laughs> but but well worth it because, like you said, he's he's an abstract thinker, but it, but he, he the way he writes and and the way he communicates ideas, you go, wow, I never thought of it that way, right? And, and that's right. even true in some of these essays. Maybe even in this first essay, I was reading stuff going, wow, that's a good point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let, let's get into it. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I, you know, in that, the, 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 the first essay, which I, I had not read previously, there were a couple things in here that I had read previously, but this one is called The Case for Freedom. 
And I really enjoyed this one. I, I like I said, I had not read it. But I think it does a nice job of tying in, and maybe this is why Fee put it first, is that it ties a lot of his ideas together in one place, yeah. right? And what he's really making the, ca- the case for, and it's the opening sentence of, of the essay, is the case for individual freedom rests chiefly on the recognition of the iner- that, that we're ignorant of ignorance, yeah. right? That, <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute, that's, you just I stop after the first sentence. The case for freedom rests chiefly on the idea that the recognition that we are, ign- we are in man's ignorance, right? And, and then he goes on to say that humiliating to human pride as it may be, we must recognize that the advance and even the preservation of civilization are dependent on the maximum number of opportunities for accidents to happen. Yep. Right, and that it's it's really the this notion of experimentation, and and and, and when I read that sentence, I was thinking the commercials that Reese's used to use for years and years and years. Hey, how did you get your peanut butter and my chocolate? <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's that's a great example of this, right? Who put those two things together, and did it happen on accident? Did two people passing by the the in the street, you know, and boom, the Chocolate bar ends up in the peanut butter, and boom, you have this new thing called the the Reese's peanut butter cup. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? That many of the things that we think of as w- with intent, all of the great stuff that we have, oftentimes happened as a result of just this this accidental spark, this accidental uh, com- coming together of two distinct and different ideas. And I, I thought that was just a, a a great way to think about it. It was, and what struck me, too, was kind of the opposite side of that, Ed, where, yeah, the case for liberty or freedom is is our ignorance, but but because he he says, if if we knew our wants and desires perfectly, there'd be little case for liberty, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Liberty is essential to leave room for the unforeseeable and the unpredictable. Mm -hmm. So he makes you think about it from both sides, and then you go, wow, that's brilliant, you know, because... if if we if we had to make the case for freedom that only beneficial things were going to come out of freedom, um, you know that would uh, <laughs> that wouldn't be um, we couldn't it, do it. It would negate the case for freedom. I mean that's the, that's the really the interesting part, right? Uh, and I think it's right after what you just said. He says it is therefore no no argument against individual freedom freedom that is that is frequently abused. Freedom necessarily necessarily means that things will be done which we do not like. Right. Right. Yeah, it's it's frequently abused freedom, mm-hmm. and but yeah. on balance, he's making the argument that the good outweighs the bad, and and then the other thing I love that he does, he says freedom, it, it could be used by the one out of one million, and that one out of one million person may be more important to society. Yes, in the use of that freedom than all the other people combined put together, and that made me think of Charles Murray's book Human Accomplishment, where mm-hmm. we're essentially standing on the shoulders of 4,002 people. Mm-hmm. You, you know, good thing people like Einstein and others had freedom <laughs> to, to do what they did um, mm-hmm. to, to better civilization. Yeah. No, no, it's really, really incredible stuff. And the, the, it is deep thinking that this guy went through to, to get to this, this, uh, this piece. But w- w- was there anything else that jumped out at you in that first essay, Ron, that you, that you wanted to... 
Yeah, other than, you know, just, just to follow up on that, he said, you know, we're all dependent on the vagaries of individual genius and circumstances, and freedom of inaction is as important as freedom of thought, which I thought was a really, really telling uh, point as well. And, you know, the use of reason aims at control and predictability, but the process of the advance of reason rests on freedom and unpredictability of human action. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that's a fascinating dichotomy, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And, and he then makes the, I think his closing point, in, in my view, is, is says to, to turn the whole of society into a single organization built and directed according to a single plan. And he's talking here about central planning, obviously, would be to extinguish the very forces that shape the individual minds that had planned it. In the first place, so it, you, 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 what you're trying to do in that sense is a, a, a massive plan creates no plan <laughs> right, in the right. end. Yep. So, but like like you, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this essay, on, and uh, I can kind of kind of see why they put it first. But it, it really does make you think, and it's just really interesting arguments, you know, for for freedom or liberty. I mean, we know the standard arguments, non-coercion and all that, but mm-hmm. he kind of looks at it even from another angle and it just I just love the way he thinks. I think that's yeah. one of the great things about reading him is is and and I'd say that about Drucker too. You read Drucker because you you just admire the way they think. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 process that they go from one to the next. But that said, not their use of their their his concise use of words because he's not concise at all. And right. <laughs> yes, I've got an example of that that we'll be discussing. But and I know we're up against our first break here. But you know, the next essay or the next chapter in this little book is called "The Use of Knowledge in Society," uh, which is classic. And I'll, I'll tell you some interesting things about that. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story about where I first read that thing. And uh, in the meantime, folks, we'd like to remind you, you can get a hold of Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. And you can check out our full show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com, where we have listed every show along with the show notes and uh, previews of upcoming shows. And you can follow us on Twitter at asktsoe. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Bleeding Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have, but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're here on The Soul of Enterprise discussing the essential F.A. Hayek, not Selma Hayek, Ron, not Selma, yeah. different Hayek, the di- a different Hayek, yep. uh, which, you know, throws a lot of people if you're just looking at that last name. Uh, but we want to now turn our attention to the essay that I first read. This is probably the first thing that I've ever read by Friedrich Hayek, and that is the use of knowledge in society. And I think it was a, either your behest or it, it from one, one is, is it completely included in one of your books? Is included in all my pricing books, including it the is. very first one. Okay. Yeah. Right. So you, you, but you didn't write the whole, you didn't do the whole essay, right? No, in the but book. I took a pretty, okay. I took a, like a three paragraph quote from this art, from this article. Yeah. And look, this is why this is so important. I was just at a conference last week, Ron, where this whole notion of knowledge transfer is becoming a huge problem, right? An absolutely huge problem in organizations where the founding partners of the organization are beginning to, let's face it, retire or in some cases, sadly, die. Sure. Right. And how is it that we transfer this not explicit knowledge like product knowledge of of how, you know, the sage product works. Right. But the tacit knowledge of, of the application of of the product to a particular business problem, right? And for for years, the way that th- this has been approached in our industry is, okay, follow me around for the next five years. Yeah, shadow, <laughs> yeah, shadow me, yeah. Right? <laughs> and that's just not going to play anymore, right? That, 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 that's just not going to play. Uh, where and 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 I think that's why this essay is so important and and uh, prescient for today, right? Um, so that so I'm going to start out with this quote from the the, the article, which says the, the reason is that the data from which economic calculus starts are never for the whole society given to a single mind, which would work out the implications and can never be given, never be so given. In other words, there is no possible way for one person or even a small group of people to know all that is knowable about the economy as a whole. And and that's why I'm so glad what you said, what you just said about how organizations lose knowledge Mm-hmm. Think about it, you know, that's the micro level, but when you think about it on a macro level and Correct. how we use knowledge dispersed throughout millions of people, you know, who have their own plans and their own ideas and their own experiments, it's absolutely fascinating. And and what I love about this article, and it's a classic article, I actually read this ad on microfiche. <laughs> microfiche. <laughs> yes. Nice. I, I read this in nineteen eighty seven or something researching or I'm sorry 97 or might have been 96 researching my book my first book and you know back then there was no internet um Mm -hmm. and you had to go to the library to look this stuff up and I had I think I I forget the library I had to go to but it was a real pain 
and sit there and, you know, get this on microfiche and sit there and read it and take notes. And, um, wow, we're just so much luckier now the way we access data. The other interesting thing about this essay, by the way, it was the inspiration for Thomas Sowell's book, Knowledge and Decisions, Mm -hmm. which he thinks is his most important book. It's also the argument, by the way, for price discrimination. Right. So this this book is pops up in various pricing books, but what what he says, the other thing he says in here, he says the economic problem is not the allocation of resources, it's mm-hmm. the utilization of knowledge not given to any one person. Mm-hmm. And and in fact Hayek believed that uh, you know, eco- e- economists using so much mathematics was not shedding any light on this very issue, they were obscuring it with math mm-hmm. because the math could never capture all the knowledge in which people base their plans. Yeah, and, and this is still highly disputed today. One of our, our favorite podcasters, Russ Roberts, often talks about this this notion that economics really suffers from uh, scientism. And, and I know that Hayek makes this point as well in other places, that it's it's really not science you can't you know oftentimes these these economic works are you know the classic guns and butter problem right and right. you've got two you know these two non-dependent variables that somehow are made dependent and they're just used as an example and he says well okay well that's that's great and all and i guess yes it does have some explanatory power but that completely breaks down even at a small firm level when you're trying to make a decision about any one one item, right? Because the, the the level of complexity is so vast that it it, it you cannot you cannot you cannot boil everything down to a nice simple elegant equation to make it work. No, and and the other thing I love he points out in this article is that scientific knowledge is not the sum total of all the knowledge in the economy, and this is the most famous line from the article. Knowledge also includes the knowledge of the particular circumstances of time and place. In other mm-hmm. words, the local knowledge, the local knowledge of a real estate agent, knowing what properties are hot and what neighborhoods are good or where the way they're trending. The barista who knows your morning coffee ritual, your your hairstylist who knows exactly the way you love your haircut. You know, all of that is an example of incredible knowledge that's housed in, in no one person. You know, it's dispersed mm-hmm. throughout the economy, and yet we find ways to put it in service to, to, to better mankind. Um, and I just, I just love the way he talks about it from a knowledge perspective. It's really opened my eyes up to the whole importance of, you know, mind over matter. Well, I want to ask you about the, the end of the quote that I, I started with that it says, and can never be so given. I, I, my fear is, is that things like IBM Watson, right, that people are going to try, right? Absolutely. What they're going to do what they're going to do is they're going to say, well, now we now have the computational power to be able to try to calculate all of this stuff out. So let's 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 throw all of this stuff into a big computer, right? And and the, the computer will then decide, you know, what what we should produce. And this got me to thinking, you know, the, I guess the, the there's the big production swing is in place already for the iPhone eight. Right, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. The, you know they're making millions of these, or have, with different num- the number of handsets, and they're deciding. I want wonder how many, uh, or, the, or there's a b- big controversy as to whether or not Samsung, which is kind of ironic, given that they're also the fiercest competitor, but they're also a supplier to Apple, right? Will be able to get Apple enough displays in order to mm-hmm. be able to be ready for the initial launch, and you know you take a step back and you think, well, you know, whenever, whenever Apple leaves the leaves 
releases a product, everybody there's going to be lines around the corner. You know, the blockbuster for the, to get the latest and greatest iPhone. But you know, the reality is that's not a given, right? No, not at that, all. That is not a given. Like the iPhone eight could absolutely fall f- flat on its face, and 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 people are like, no, it's just a piece of crap. Don't even bother. Yep. You know, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you're right. I think uh, the the idea of Watson and, and big, I mean, the whole big data thing uh, does make it look like, you know, we're going to try and, and mm-hmm. be even more, you know, scientific about this. But I think in this essay, Hayek is using the word knowledge the way we would define it and have defined it in other shows. He's, it's not data. It's mm-hmm. actually knowledge because he does talk about tacit knowledge. Correct. You know, I don't think he uses the word tacit, but but he does mean tacit. Uh, you know, the particular circumstances of time and place. That's like tacit knowledge, right? Your hairstylist knowing how you want your haircut. Um, so I, I I think that you know he he's leaving enough room for unpredictability. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Because data can only be about the past, right? Correct, correct. So, and I think he, that leads to the third essay, which I, 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 again, I looked at it at a cursory level. There were a couple of others that I really want to get to, including and especially the last essay, because I, I think you and I could have a fun conversation about that. Absolutely. But if you, if if you would give 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 like the overview and your thoughts on his the, the third chapter, which is the pretense of knowledge, which is his speech to the Nobel Committee, correct? When he won his the Nobel Prize. Yes, and just add just uh, before I do that, just one more thing on the. the Okay, chapter, yeah, yeah, the sorry. use of knowledge. Uh, he said that um, you know central planning can never take into account all the statistical information of of time and place, right? And th- right. there was an, actually a, a Russian economist back in the Soviet Union days who joked that, oh yes, we're going to have communism throughout the entire world, except New Zealand. And they said, why except New Zealand? He he said, well, there has to be a price system somewhere that we can use. and and that's really what Hayek was saying that the price system is the way we disperse knowledge Mm -hmm. and he said if if a human designed this it would be a marvel Mm -hmm. because when the when the price of something goes up we we consume less of it in other words we conserve it conserve it or we move it to more valuable resources millions of people they don't even have to know why they just Mm -hmm. all move in the right direction he thought that was a marvel and Obviously, we agree. We talk about the price system all the time. So anyway, I just thought that was a really cool point. Um, the third chapter, the pretense of knowledge, was his Nobel speech in 74. And if you remember 74, it was a pretty crappy decade for macroeconomists, right? There was yeah. stagflation. And they, couldn't, they couldn't even diagnose the issue, uh, let alone solve it, uh, because they were stuck in the Keynesian mind trap. But he said... Um, in this speech, as a profession, we've made a mess of things, <laughs> which I thought was wow. Um, and, he, and, and he thought that uh, economists, you know, had physics envy, um, you know, that scientific attitude of using numbers to try and explain everything. Uh, he mm-hmm. said, in fact, our theories are formulated in such terms, they refer only to measurable magnitudes, but the actions of millions can't be measured. And he even cited Pareto, another 16th scholar, you know, the Spanish school, um, they understood this. They understood mm-hmm. that, you know, as, as Russ Roberts loves to say, yeah, life's complicated. It's messy, right? People are yep. unpredictable. Um, and, and, and just to show you how verbose 
uh, Hayek's writing can be, folks. Here, here, here's the great line I love from this essay, Ed. He says, mm-hmm. I confess that I prefer true but imperfect knowledge, even if it leaves much undetermined and unpredictable to a pretense of exact knowledge that is likely to be false. In other words, I'd rather be approximately right or yeah, <laughs> rather than precisely wrong. I can uh-huh. say it in like eight words and he can <laughs> Yeah, whatever. So, (laughs) um, but the other interesting thing I thought that he laid on the Nobel committee in his speech was he said, what we economists need to be doing is cultivating growth by uh, providing an appropriate environment like a gardener. Mm -hmm. And this was before Peter Sellers movie being there. I think, you know, Chauncey, the gardener. Gone dirty up. Yeah. Could have been the inspiration. (laughs) But I really like this essay because he really does take on the uh, the economics profession, says what a mess it's in. So, anyway, that that was a, another really good essay. And, and geez, we're up against it again, Ed. But, folks, yeah. I'd like to remind you, uh, check out the soulofenterprise.com. Check out our calendar page, and you can see where Ed and I will be uh, appearing live. And, gee, Ed, we got something coming up, uh, what, in a week or so at Sage Summit. Yes, well, actually, it's uh, next Tuesday, Ron, so four days from now, if you're counting, and uh, going to be a lot of fun to be there with my compatriots at Sage, my colleagues at Sage, and also have you there, and we're really looking forward to delivering some great content, so uh, stay Excellent. tuned for that, because we're going we're gonna to actually record a live show there and play it back at some point. And folks, we'll be back after we hear uh, from our sponsor. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're doing Memorable Mentors, and we're discussing Friedrich Hayek. And uh, he's got six chapters in this free book that you can get. We'll post the link on the show notes. You can download it from the Foundation of Economic uh, Education for free. And, Ed, uh, we're going to jump to the sixth chapter, Ed, because I know uh, this interests both of us. And it's, it's a famous essay. People on all sides love to quote it. It was actually published, I, I believe, first as a postscript in his book, The Constitution of Liberty. That's where I first read it. Um, and it's why I'm not a conservative. Yes. So, yes. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's talk about this tug of war between conservatives and progressives uh, that he talks about. And he also lays out why he's not a conservative and the issues that he has with conservatives. Well, what I think is interesting about this is, first of all, I, I I did have visions as I was reading through this of you taking your Kindle and flinging it across the room. Oh no, uh, not at all, not at all. <laughs> well, mostly because you know what it's it's all about definitions here, right? It's all about definitions, and if it what he 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 thinks of it as a triad, right? He he'll he'll say he'll have the the liberal, which is what he is. Which and then he he does even talk about how it would be in the United States called libertarian, although he says he does not like the word, nor do he I, does, by the way. And he doesn't call himself a libertarian either. No, he he <laughs> sticks with like he sticks word. with liberal, and he and he doesn't even say classical liberal. He just says liberal, liberal, liberal. That's it, what he, actually he, if you if you go, he actually calls himself an old Whig. Right, an old Whig emphasis, ultimately. Yeah, with emphasis on the old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. But at, then the other two points, because he, he looks at it as a triangle, is then the the conservative opinion and then what he'll call the progressive opinion. Right. Or yep. socialist, really, is that the, the word that he more often uses is socialist. And uh, and I think it's interesting because have you ever taken run the world's smallest political quiz? Right. This I is otherwise known as the Nolan chart. I believe so. I think I might have got that from you somewhere. Yeah, and uh, we can put it. We can put it on the on the website as well. I mean, I would not not to really get political, but but that this was then a further development of this point that that Hayek is making, and that there's there's really not just this flat out left right paradigm. There's also a uh, I don't know a north south component to it as well, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And you know where where do you fall on this? It depends. It depends on the answering of of uh, f- five questions on social progress and 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 five questions on economic, uh, right? Right. And it, it's very interesting the way that it lays out. But I, I don't want to talk so much about that. But I do want to talk about the way that he sees um, conservatives as. And it's interesting because I, I was 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 reminded, uh, you know, he talks about more that they're also, in a sense, religious conservatives. And he kind of bashes on people who don't believe in evolution. And I'm like, well, there's plenty of conservatives that I know that are okay with the fact that we there was evolution. They just think that there there might have been a, a you know a, a creator of that evolution, right? There's not that doesn't you can perfectly believe in evolution and believe in it that there was a a, a starter of the process, right? Right. Right. Um, and then you know, but he but he also defines economic or, or conservatives as people who are for for the most part protectionist, 
right? And I, in a sense, I think we're seeing the reemergence of that in the Trump movement. I was kind of like, wow, that's really fascinating that we've kind of come full circle because for the longest time, even conservatives in the U.S., I don't think had a big cons- uh, protectionist bent to them, well, except when it comes to, to um, uh, em- em- the immigration issue. You, yeah, you have to, for economic protection tariffs, you have to go back to the 1800s, 1900s um, to, uh, to mm-hmm. see the Republican Party say, uh, advocating for protectionism, they they mm-hmm. they have flipped on that. Um, the other thing I found it interesting at is this: as conservatives have an innate fear of change, uh, and they they they're happy to use the power of government to prevent change or to slow it down. He said they have a fondness for authority and lack of understanding of economic forces. Um, they have a hostility to of internationalism and and a strident nationalism. Um, conservatives feel instinctively that it's new ideas more than anything else that cause change. And because they distrust theory and, and have a lack of imagination of anything new except what's already been proven mm-hmm. so that they're reluctant to try uh, new things. Now, he did say, if, if you look at this article closely, he does say that uh, he did say the USA is one place in the world where you can call yourself a conservative and be a lover of liberty because right. we want to defend those institutions with which preserve it. And American conservatism is simply classical liberalism, and it inspired John Locke, Edmund Burke, Adam Smith. Um, but, but I agree with you. It, it Because the word conservative, think about it. it. It means one thing here in the USA, mm-hmm. but use it in Saudi Arabia. Tell me what it means. Right. Russia, France, <laughs> the UK, even our brethren in the UK, completely mm-hmm. different. So really, Edmund Burke himself described himself as an old Whig. Right. So Hayek. Yep. Yeah, and it, it, I guess it all comes down to, and I think he may, he, well, he does make this point, is what is it that you're trying to conserve, right? Yes. And, and that's your point, is that if you're trying to conserve the notions of liberty in the United States, well, then you're a conservative. But my, my point was, is, isn't it interesting, though? And I'm, look, I'm not saying that the conservative movement has, has moved over in full force to Trumpism, right? That's not what I'm saying. I just am saying that it, 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 it seems to be that there is at least a, a penchant for being, uh, being okay with that idea again in some way. Right. Yeah, I, I yes, yeah. um, some, but some. you can still find never Trumpers. I mean, I read them every day, uh, who yep. who take the guy to task for everything, um, and you know we. But we also know that Trump's not a conservative. He, right. Trump is not a particularly ideological person anyway. No. He doesn't see the world through that lens at all. Not like mm-hmm. a liberal or or libertarian or a conservative does. He doesn't walk around with an ideology. No. No, which he, scares me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, and but and and this was my this was my point where I was tying this back because he what he what he argues in this book is he, he says and I think you mentioned it earlier is conservatives lack principles, right? Now doesn't mean that's what he says. He says and this he says I want to distinguish this that doesn't mean that they don't have necessarily strong moral convictions, right? right? Right. He's what he what I mean is that they have no political principles which enable him to work with people whose moral lives value uh, or moral values differ from his own or the political order from which uh, they uh, can obey their convictions. And I think in a sense, 
I don't know, would, would, be, would Trump be considered an old world conservative? I mean, is, is he more in that classical sense of the use conservative than, than like, like, like I said, a conservative in France, for example? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question because, because he's not ideological. It's very hard to pin him down. I, I want to say he's more like an Andrew Jackson, you know, populist. Um, but I'm not even sure what populist is. <laughs> you know, there's nationalism, there's populism. You know, what's the distinction between that? Um, one thing I do know is that Hayek did say, you know, he, he he considers himself an old Whig, and so did James Madison, so did Thomas Jefferson, the signers of the Declaration, and the members of the Constitutional Convention. In fact, Ed, if you remember, Washington soldiers clad themselves in the traditional blue and buff colors of the Whigs. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So. Nope. It, it, it's, it is really interesting. And, 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 you know, Jonah Goldberg, this is one of his pet peeves, uh, the writer at National Review, author of Fascism, which is a book I know you read and really enjoyed. I did, too. But he makes the point, you know, William F. Buckley. Now, William F. Buckley was no shrinking violet when it, when it <laughs> came to political <laughs> philosophy, right? Right, right. And he contributed an essay to a book titled, What is Conservatism? And here's the title. I'll just give you the title of the chapter. Notes mm-hmm. towards an empirical definition of conservatism reluctantly and apologetically given by William F. Buckley. Because conservatism isn't a single thing. It's a bundle of principles married to a prudential and humble appreciation of the complexities of life and the sanctity of successful human institutions. And this idea that conservatives fear change, I believe, is a little bit hyper, a bit of hyperbole on Hayek's part, because one thing that I know conservatives do embrace is the free market, and nothing brings change faster or or more complete than the free market. I mean, who's impo- who who's who's opposing GMO, Uber? Uh, okay, you can make an argument that there's there's a strain on the right that's doing that. But for the most part, people that believe in free enterprise love change. True, I, I, you know, and then but the, the one I would throw back at you to a sense would be uh, immigration, right? Immigration is is in effect about change, and even if you say, well, it's potentially change to the the culture of the organi- of the of the country. Well, now we now we're going down the path that Hayek talked about, which is the nationalism piece, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think conservatives might counter that we're talking about the culture, so we're talking about institutions that have made have worked, have proven, have a track record, and have worked, and we don't want to disrupt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What well, one one last point that I want to make is we're coming up against our our break on this, and th- this this one really uh, jumped out at me, and I think this is just a fantastic argument to to make. Um, he, and and he is talking here specifically about the United States and the evolution of power to the people, right? He says it was only when power came into the hands of the majority that further limitations on the power of government was thought unnecessary. <laughs> right, yeah. and I think that that's a really imp- important an important point. But then he goes on to say, "Is like it, in this sense, democracy and unlimited government are connected." Yeah, yeah, right. 
right? The, this whole notion, and we hear this over and over again, right? This, well, you know, the majority majority rules, majority rules. And I think, you know, one of the thinkers that we we, we hope to, to talk more about at, at some future show, and we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but is this whole notion of pub, public choice theory and how, you know, democracy is often sometimes the worst way to make a decision on something. Absolutely. And just because it's majority doesn't make it moral, ethical, or right, or, mm-hmm. or anything else. Yeah, I mean, democracy is a crappy way to make decisions. It's so flawed. <laughs> well, as is, as is often said in libertarian circles, democracy is, is two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do like this essay. I think he makes some good points, and uh, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy this um, because, I, you know, it, it, it shows that he grappled with these ideas, and mm-hmm. I think everybody should. Yeah, no. No matter it, where you are on the spectrum. And I actually, of of all of the the essays in this book, I thought it was the the the, the best best written. As I thought, it, it it really stood out to me as being the most concise and easy easy to digest and understand. So, anyway, that maybe that's just me. Well, we're now up against our last break, Ron. But we want to remind you that you can get hold of both Ron and me at asktsoe at verisage.com. The webpage is, of course, thesoulofenterprise.com. And if you do a little trick there, if you do thesoulofenterprise.com slash iTunes, it will take immediately to our iTunes page where you can subscribe to our radio show as a podcast, but even more importantly, where you can review the show. And let me tell you that both Ron and I really and truly appreciate any reviews that you can put up on that site. Uh, we love reading them. We, we love seeing what you have to say about our show. Uh, and it's the, there are a currency that really makes us think, okay, we're doing a good job. So if you, at this point, just pause and take a, take a moment out, thesoulofenterprise.com slash iTunes, and please go review the show. But right now we're going to hear from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're doing Memorable Mentors here, our series where we've already talked about Ludwig von Mises and Frederick Bastiat, Ed. We did those two. Uh, we're making our way through these uh, FEE books, and there's, what, five or six of them? Something I believe like so, yeah. There's some good stuff. It really is. And and what I like about them, Ron, is that there it, it does break it down. And it takes the best of the best. It's sort of like a greatest hits album. You know, for a for a band, and you know, you get the greatest hits album when it's it's something that, yeah, I like it, but look, I'm not going to go headlong into all of the minutia of their songs, and th- this is what the, these books enable you to do: just get a really a taste for what these great thinkers have to say, and it is good stuff. So I highly recommend that you get in hold of them and reading them, and and then of course listening to our show. <laughs> so let's deal with the fourth chapter in this book. Let's go backwards and talk about intellectuals and socialism. I won't spend a lot of time on this, Ed, but I loved his I love his definition of an intellectual. He said those are professional secondhand dealers in ideas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he also yeah. makes the point in this, and and really, Thomas Sowell has written a whole book on intellectuals. Uh, in fact, I think that's the title of the book, Intellectuals, and it's it's a masterpiece. Um, it's brilliant and really expands on this theme. But he, Hayek points out that socialism, for example, was never a working class movement. It was developed by theorists and intellectuals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, usually that's the way it is. And he also makes the point in this, and I want just to get your take on this. He said the philosopher has a greater influence over intellectuals than any other scholar or scientist. Do you think that's still true? It's a very interesting point. Yeah, it is an interesting point. And I want to say that ultimately the answer is yes, although I think they've spent the better part of the last two decades trying to to, – calculate uh, and and go through this exercise of proving they're correct with the use of of statistics and and or advanced statistics and I think that is beginning to break up, though. Um, there's there. I don't know if you've seen this, Ron, but there's a huge movement, and I forget who it is. It might be Brian Kaplan and, and his group, who are or they they have all of this wiki uh, effectively, where you can where people upload their research, especially about not only economic data, but it's also psychological and sociologic mm-hmm. experiments. Mm-hmm. And he dare, dares people to replicate it. Replicate it. Yep. And the failure rate there is astonishing. Incredibly <clears throat> high. Yes, that would include some of Ariely's work too, by the way, mm-hmm. and other I know. Behavior, yeah, other behavioral economists. Yeah, in fact, they're calling it kind of a scandal. Um, mm-hmm. But the the other interesting thing, Ed, is he talks. You know, that the left has a utopia, so they can appeal to the imagination. You know, let's face it, nobody marches in the streets for free markets, right? Right. I, I mean, it's just it, it's not a rallying cry. And, and the people that would go out in the streets and, and march for free markets would end up in the bookstores. Right. <laughs> you, like you and me. <laughs> There's just no rallying cry there. And, and, and he said, you know, we must, we must find a rallying cry. We must appeal to the imagination. And quite frankly, I don't know how you do that. I mean, if freedom doesn't turn people on and liberty, um, then I don't know what appeals to their imagination because we can't give them a utopia. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. So 
The fifth chapter in this book, Ed, is the moral element in free enterprise. And this this ties so good into our show. So what, what struck you about this? Well, <laughs> again, so he, he's not very uh, concise, but man, I tell you, he, he knows how to open an essay. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and the opening opening sentence, I guess it's paragraph of this essay, and this is some of the shorter sentences that you'll find in the whole thing, is economic activity provides the material means for our ends. Okay, that's a, that, we, that we get. Then the second sentence, at the same time, most of our individual efforts are directed to providing means for the ends of others in order that they, in turn, may provide for us with the means for our ends. And the last sentence, it is only because we are free in the choice of our means that we are also free in the choice of our ends. And I was like, dang, that's good. <laughs> it is good. <laughs> it is good. And, and I also loved how he said, you know, a free society lacking a moral foundation would be very, would be a very unpleasant place to live, but mm-hmm. better than an unfree an immoral society. Yes, that was a really great point. I thought about doing like a two by two, you know, like a free, yeah. unfree, moral, immoral. Yep, yep. <laughs> fill know, that out. Yep, and fill that out. And and clearly, your best is you know free and moral, right? That would 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 be. And and I think his point, which I think is is underlying this whole this the whole next section of the essay, is that there are a lot of people who who argue that that say um, you know uh, the, the people in in Iraq. Or or Somalia. Well, we, we must first we, we must first make sure that they're moral before we grant them freedom, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And and his, and his point is, well, you know what? You can't do that, and then therefore it's just best to just give them freedom, and and you and and hope that potentially morality can grow out of that. Right. The other kind of main theme running through this head is he, he, he says the chief source of dissatisfaction with the free enterprise system is this idea that, you know, the value of our services confer some type of moral merit on a person. Just because you're loaded, that means you're a great person. He doesn't believe that at all. He, but he does think that this is a great merit of the free enterprise system because we're not dependent on what our fellow humans think of us personally or individually. We can still serve people and, you know, not be the the most pleasant person in the world, right? The typical miser, Scrooge, whatever. Mm-hmm. But the other point, and again, this is just the way he thinks, just the way he frames an issue, which I just love. He said, we don't know in advance if it's a brilliant idea that took you years of work or a, just a stroke of luck that made you a mm-hmm. genius, you know, right? Yep. Bill Gates, was it just a stroke of luck or was it his years of work and programming in the lab in his high school? You know, he said, but since we don't know it in advance, we must allow the man to get gain, even if it was a circumstance of luck, because we mm-hmm. just don't know which is which. No, this so, is this is absolutely brilliant. I mean, I the, the thing that, that got me about this, and I was thinking about this in terms of of you know old the old religious sense. I mean, there there's stories in in um, in one of one of the, the the questions that Jesus is asked at one point is uh, about the blind man. Is it is by the, they ask is it because of his sin or his parents' sin that he was right. born blind? 
right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, of course, he he says neither, right? And I, what I th- and and what what is you know the great point is there is that you know bad things happen to good people, right? Bad things yeah. happen to good people. And what Hayek makes the point here is that there's a also, but there's a misperception in modern society that thinks that that people who uh, who 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 do who who make a lot of money are are were somehow did it be, because they were they they were underhanded in their dealings right? right and i love that this this is my i think probably my favorite sentence in in this essay is worldly success is neither the only evidence nor regarded as certain proof of individual merit right and that was your point it could be it can be luck sometimes it's better to be lucky than good and yep. sometimes that happens, <laughs> right. The, right? the other thing I love that he points out in this essay is, you know, the argument that a free market, a free enterprise system is much more materialistic. Um, he said that might be true, but at least it leaves us free to choose other paths. If we want to live like a monk, you know, we probably have more wealth and means to do that. But, but Ed, if you think about it, I mean, if you read about the USSR, North Korea, Cuba, there's no more materialistic societies because they leave the production of the ends and the means to a centrally planned economy. And that gets everybody thinking about it. I mean, you see TV, all it runs the production quotas and the farm quotas. They're, they're nothing but materialistic in yep. say, a, a centrally planned economy versus a free enterprise system. So I thought that was another really good point that he made. Yeah. And the last quick point that I'll make is he talks about periods of cultural and artistic creativity have generally followed rather than coincided with periods of most rapid increase in wealth. And I made a note here that says also environmental concern, right? Environmental concern follows wealth, right? right. Not, not, not precedes it or coincides with it, which I think was an interesting point. Wow. Whoa, what a guy. Great stuff, Ed. What a guy. All right. What's on store for next week? Next week, Ron, we're going to talk about the in what year were you born? Generational astrology. Uh, we're taking on another sacred cow. I love it. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage. Energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please check out our show notes at soulofenterprise.com. We'll post uh, full show notes on today's show and the link where you can get the free book on Frederick Hayek. And also, you can contact Ed and myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. 